0: Hello and welcome to e-commerce matters, brought to you by Black Curve. We help e-commerce businesses make pricing decisions. Uh, oh goodness me!
1: You'd have thought I had this
0: down by now. <laughs> it's
1: episode twenty-five.
0: Hello and welcome to e-commerce matters, brought to you by Black Curve. We help e-commerce businesses make pricing decisions. Today's title is e-commerce matters 2020: A Year in Review. I'm sure some of you out there would prefer the title 2020 can bleep off, but hey ho, it's been okay in ups and downs for some of us. Um, well, we've done 24 episodes, would you believe, Rob, since June, so we've got a lot to cover. And today is going to be one of those recap videos of best bits. So I hope you are ready. As always, I'm joined by my—I should call you the Elf of Data, shouldn't I today? Because it is Christmas after all. Dr. Rob Horton. I'm Philip Hathwayte, uh, founder of Black Curb. And without further ado, here we go. All right, Mr. Elf, how are you yeah. doing today? Are you in Christmas spirit?
1: I'm in data spirits, so I guess. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. make of that what you will. <laughs> Well, being it,
0: uh, a year in review, um, uh, for those of you who are new listeners, uh, more recently we've decided to bring a prop uh, for, for, for our various podcasts just to summarise the the particular topic that we're talking about. Um, so have you got a particular prop that you'd like to summarise maybe this year, uh, something that, that, that would summarise our podcast experience of the last 24 episodes, Rob?
1: Yeah, I have. I've got Sarah Raven's Grow, Cook, Eat Diary 2021. Oh. The reason I've got this is because I can't wait for 2020 to be over.
0: So you're in the 2020 can bleep off uh, camp, basically.
1: Yeah, I haven't really left my house for months.
0: (laughs) Well, I think icing on the cake, Before digesting, I think I knew that 2020 was due due to end. Um, uh, My other half was in a car accident yesterday. So uh, totally fine, totally fine. But uh, my top tip that's not pricing related is don't buy a smart car. Buy a Volvo because uh, this smart car was like it drove into the back of back of her, and uh, this smart car was totally kind of KO'd. Oh Whereas there was a mere blip in the the, the rear <laughs> bumper. So uh, so I think I think I've probably mentioned Volvo's quite a few times in these podcasts, but you know year year in review, I think that was the final one of going right. I think we're done with this year, aren't we? Uh, nice. Aren't we all? So so my pod my uh, my prop for today is I've gone festive. I've gone festive uh, because really why cool. not and and wait for it he does a little dance as well and I'm continuing the theme because I normally nick things from around my house invariably this isn't my son's toy though so uh, so I think I'll, I'll get away I'll get away with that by the way what was your favorite prop I've got a favorite prop of yours um so my my favorite prop of yours because it made me the chuckle the most uh was your dominoes when you uh when you <laughs> said uh and uh and and i might i might snip it in so i think I'll, i think i'll snip it in so for those of you who didn't didn't hear here it is
1: well mine's mine is a bit of a reach uh because i well it's we've recorded two in quite close succession, so i'm still in devon and i still haven't properly moved in but i have a domino set oh so the uh, what? What we'll talk about it later. But how a small change at one end can have a massive knock-on all the way down <laughs> to the other. <laughs> <laughs> I, told you it was <laughs> I like
0: it. I like it. I like it. I'm not sure if I now want to show you what I've got. <laughs> Is it a domino set? It's a domino set. It's a lovely wooden. What was your favourite pop, Rob? By the way,
1: I like your little shop. yeah my little shop (laughs) it's not reaper's is it no
0: uh it's totally mine it's mine i play with it all the time uh and i think what was that the one where when i get peckish i can eat plastic fruit
1: uh yes exactly um and yeah i think that was my favorite because it was on point and also quite nostalgic (laughs) (laughs) you wished you wished you
0: had one of those so um, so we've done 24 episodes. Uh, should, before we dive in, was there one that was a particular favourite of yours? Or should I wait until the end to ask that particular question?
1: Um, I think I've enjoyed, i really enjoyed the kind of teardown ones. I think they're, for me they're certainly often more interesting because we can we can talk at theory. I mean, you know, I mean, we can talk pricing theory for length, but seeing seeing the practical impact of it is cool. I also really liked uh the more tactical ones, like how often should you change your price and that kind of stuff, because there's a lot of like relevance to what, what we do on a daily basis and that kind of bridging that gap between pricing theory, which actually a lot of I think just doesn't work in practice. Uh, so, what can you actually do, and what difference can you make?
0: Yeah, I think I mean we, we started doing the pricing teardowns a bit more recently, didn't we? We did one about sporting goods, which um, which if it hasn't been released yet, it will soon, it will soon be released. Um, and uh, and we did one uh, kind of last month or so about the about the appliance sector. And um, one thing that I was I was quite surprised about is that it the the the, pro, the, the sectors that are changing price more frequently than others certainly seem to be. As we said, it's the appliance sectors, it's the the ones that are selling kind of branded goods that are that are hyper competitive and that kind of leans itself more to you know your dishwashers your washing machines your cookers um, and certainly in the in the teardown and the data that we looked those there was a lot of movement um, there was a lot of movement in those markets whereas more recently in the sporting goods sector there certainly seemed to be increased increased stability now you know we we, we said in the particular podcast didn't we that we were we were summarizing and looking at discrete elements of time but um but it 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 seems to indicate that certain sectors have got a, a more mature with their pricing of making make it a, have sort of instilled automation and they're almost ahead of the head of the curve as well with with their pricing operation
1: yeah i think that's fair. i think it probably ties in a lot with supply chain uh as well so um the more competitive you are anywhere the more likely you're going to need to automate everything really to keep to keep up i think uh because it's it, I mean, what's the, the what's richard that says it but there are there are three ways businesses can compete one of which is operational efficiency and, and that that's really where pricing op- optimization really sits for, for most for most people i think um certainly normal businesses anyway
0: well, because we've we've said that, and we'll come across automation and efficiency uh, in a in in a few moments. And actually, we did that right out of the gate, didn't we? On first on our first episode. Um, but because we're doing things a bit backwards today, because I've asked you what your favourite is, I'll I'll I'll, I'll uh, tell you what my favourite is. I really enjoyed our bye bye never knowingly undersold, uh, which was a view on uh, on John Lewis ditching their price promise. I and mean, if I'm honest, it was because from a personal point of view, it was a nice opportunity to go down memory lane because. I used to be a, a John Lewis partnership partner I, I don't know if you're a partner or you're an employee I, I, I forget the, uh, the, the, the business jargon there but, um, but I was uh, an employee of the John Lewis partnership and, and so it, it was a nice uh, Look back to my 16, 17, 18 year seventeen, eighteen-year-old, eighteen-year-old self, which unfortunately is becoming further and further away in the past. It feels like it feels like yesterday, but more than more than a decade's gone. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can call you the oldie because you're a few months older than me, so.
1: Uh. <laughs> we're basically the same age so everything that philip says applies equally to me <laughs> i think i've got like six months on him or something but we're the same school year so i still work in school years that's uh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah.
0: I, I, want, I i don't know what age you suddenly stop working in school years that was well, maybe we'll have that for another podcast you, topic
1: it <laughs> just defines your life
0: when we're 87 or whatever and sitting in our respective care homes and speaking to each other we can say well you 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 in the year above or the year below me that that'll be that'll be the conversation's that we're having uh, with our with our other inmates at the uh at the care homes. Um, so anyway before we before we digress um so shall we should we go through some of these episodes so we're not going to go through all 24 episodes don't worry um because we could he- be here a while and we'll do a mixture of um of us commenting on on what we you know summarizing the points and also don't worry we'll also look back to the um to the actual podcast titles themselves sorry the podcast clips themselves so the first one there is how often should an e-commerce uh, business t- change prices? And actually, this was, you know, one of the, would you say this was a controversial one out of the gate, Rob?
1: I think so. And I think it's something that we're continually learning and refining our view on a black curve. So I, I think, well, let's let's roll the clip and then, and then we can go into it maybe. The frequency with which you change your prices has more
0: of an impact of how well you perform rather than what time or what day of the week you change your prices, which just seems, seems a bit bizarre when you think of it, but to a certain extent you're trying to get to market efficiency, you're trying, trying, to, you're trying, to, trying to win and you've got to rapidly make lots of pricing changes especially if you've got thousands and thousands of products on a continual basis to get to that point. Whereas if you change it at 9pm versus 10pm on a Monday or a Tuesday, fundamentally, how many different units are you going to sell in that 24-hour period? Right? Is, that make, is that going to make it massive? Is that going to turn the
1: your business? So. so what was the key takeaway, Rob, from, uh, from, from the episode for you? Um, well, my memory is famously trashed, so my my views might have changed. But I think it was really there's a market frequency um, that you need to to keep up with to stay competitive, and that that really dictates how often you should change your price. Um, my view on that has become slightly more nuanced in that. Um, I am beginning to believe there is a clear distinction between how often you should be collecting, analysing and looking at data versus making an action, which kind of one of these things that probably sounds quite obvious when you say it out loud, but isn't necessarily in the heat of battle. Um, because I, I really believe that you need up-to-the-minute data because traditionally businesses are worked in these kind of cycles so i do a weekly price sweep a monthly price sweep a quarterly price sweep actually your prices could should be able to change at any given point uh it's just the frequency at which they change on average should be a will be around the market frequency and then that will vary based on products within your inventory and the rest of it so um whilst it does kind of average out to about a week in e just because of business cycles buying processes and the rest of it you should be obtaining your data and at least checking for like algorithmically or otherwise much more frequently than that I think is my view
0: yeah, I mean I think if we look back at when we actually recorded that it was in June and you know the dust had settled a bit a bit on lockdown but actually even in the first first few months it was of lockdown and in a in a pandemic environment you know the the more efficient you are the more kind of gutsy gritty the more you've got automated you know, obviously it helps if you've got a product that people want, but but you're more likely to succeed. You increase your chances of, of success. And and I think the key takeaway that I had from that is that if you look at um, if you look at a lot of retailers' portfolios, and you do an average across their entire portfolio, you know they're changing prices sort of once a month, once every two months, once every three months. When you do an average of all kind of three thousand, four thousand, up to hundred thousand or so products, and I think the the businesses that are doing more successfully, and certainly the ones that that we've seen, are the ones that have automated their pricing, are are doing price tests and nudging the price to identify. You know what is the right price at any given time, and therefore they are they are coming out on top, so therefore the key takeaway I took from that was that that by the natural product the ones that are looking to optimize are making decisions more more frequently, and the byproduct of that is that they're they're kind of coming out on top um and I'd sort of agree also with your with your statement just now actually of of on the backdrop of a kind of a second lockdown actually. The frequency which you collect, the, the, the higher the frequency you collect, the smarter that those those decisions can be, because actually we identified that that changing price a week between price changes is actually uber valuable is actually you're actually really quite strong. But if you're, if you're constantly listening to the market, you can work out what day of the week you should change, what time of day you should change, what products are changing more frequently. So where can you, where can you get a steal on, steal on the, steal on the market? And you can't, you can't make those nuanced changes if you're not, you haven't constantly got an ear to the market.
1: Yeah. And I think it's been a fascinating year for it as well in that like, I mean, hand on heart, neither of us would have. Said could have predicted the kind of the business cycles and how how ecoms changed. Certainly, since that episode, actually, which was right at the start of lockdown, um, talking to talking to our customers, we've uh, they've seen periods of huge of like zero competition as people didn't have any stock apart from them, so they don't need to change prices at all or compete with anything. Just stop their ad spend completely because they were getting so much organic traffic that they didn't even need to advertise and then uh, stepping into kind of the end of the year things become more normal and then quite number of price changes increases as does the amount of ad spend more competitive market all, all those kind of things and then coming through a second lockdown or end of season similar cycles weird black fridays which we went over in sporting goods in particular, but not much price movement um at all in that either. So I think this is why it becomes really important to be able to be agile or, or dynamic within within your marketplace. Because I don't think I don't think now it's so easy to predict like a business cycle or or, or kind of to say you should be doing this. Once a week, or for this group of products, once a week. For these group of products, once a month. The rest of it, because so much weird stuff is going on that you don't know what products people are going to buy. Uh, seasonality, if you lock everyone indoors, is blown out the water. Um, so it's so really having an automated process that just handles it is probably a much smarter thing to do than try and apply kind of classical business knowledge. Um, And I know we may get onto the AI stuff later, but one of the really interesting fallouts for me is that everyone's models have been blown up. Like, and I don't don't give a shit what anyone says to you. If they're telling you that they can use the past three years data to tell you something about this year, they're lying. Like, it's, it's such a different environment. So all these kind of tactical questions that we've been asking, how often should I, Change my price? How should I teach my treat my competitors? Blah 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 blah. Um, a really really different, actually probably even from when we did the podcast, which I think is cool, like really cool, but also quite hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, in in episode three, we looked at why competitive data is crap, and uh, and we'll just cue a clip to tee that up
1: difficulty is to do with the curation of those results so the search term that you search in google will dramatically affect how accurate a match you get out the other end so if you assume that you could search for a a product and then get decent uh competitive to the other side that's very naive right because all and you can just pick that very easily just by going google hoover and see what results you get back Right. And then go Google Dyson Hoover, see what results you get back and then Google Dyson V10 animal Hoover. And you're still getting really, really inaccurate search results because Google is doing its best to make your life easier. Right. As a, as a shopper, because Google's saying, okay, yeah, I know you want this Hoover, but have you looked at all these other ones, right? Look, it's a competitive marketplace out there. You might want the V7. You might want another brand. Um, and that is what makes actual gathering of data difficult. Uh, because when you're trying to find a light for light match for a client, if you're not very careful about how you do it, you're going to drag in all that other data that isn't actually relevant.
0: So Rob, why do you still agree with some of those points of why competitor
1: yeah, data is crap? that hasn't changed. <laughs> 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 no, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. All still crap, still hard to scrape. I think
0: we caveated the actual podcast itself by by we had a controversial title. To uh, it was actually our own market testing, wasn't it? To see if to see if putting a, a bit of a controversial title would get more listens, and and uh, and it did. It did. So so it sort of proved proved that we maybe have to put in a bit of a crass swear term in more of these more of these titles. But yeah, um, it's
1: worth, sorry, it's worth saying that actually the the feedback around that was incredibly. Positive. I think we struck an, struck a chord there with a lot of people using the data day in, day out, and the struggles they actually have. So I don't think it was just us screaming into the abyss. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: um, but I think my key takeaway from that was that really a kind of making people aware, because I don't think a lot of people, if if you haven't used competitor data before, and you go and find a competitor data supplier. You kind of assume you take it on face value that well, of course it's going to be the right match, or or of course that data is going to going to be great. Um, I mean, you know, w- one of the things that we flagged in flagged in the podcast is that we know one of our competitors of ours doesn't collect data on a weekend, right? You know, that's like peak trading environment. So you have no visibility of whether or not, um, you know, whether or not prices are changing changing over the weekend, and it's and it's kind of just to a certain extent just flagging that right. You've got competitor data. Take a pause. Try and understand. You know what is it it's telling me. What can I a hundred percent believe, and what do I need to build in other? I don't know robust metrics, whether it be you know minimum price safeguards. If you are going to do repricing off the back of back of data, which you are not, you are not kind of a hundred percent, a hundred percent sure of. Um, but I've certainly you know since since June, um, you know I, I founded Black Curve on on a fr- one of the frustrations of. A lot of retailers were blindly following competitor data, and and actually, for a certain extent, at the early days of Black Curve, I had I had a, a real sort of almost disgust of disgust of competitor data, where I was very much an advocate of making decisions based off your sales history, based off of stock levels, and so forth. And that still very much is the case. But I think it's to come back to what we said earlier around the frequency which you listen to the market, the listening to it. It doesn't mean that you have to proactively, you know, follow everything. And I think that that that's the that's that's where we're coming at it from. You need to know its flaws and then you need to use use what you know is not flawed or even what is slightly flawed to support you with your subsequent subsequent decision making.
1: Yeah I think this is interesting because I think this is one of the the one of the things where we started quite far apart and obviously through working together we've come to the middle because I was much more on the other side of competitive data because it's a really useful hack in that we, we spoke about this i think in, in, in a number of podcasts but and in this one that if if it's the only lens you've got in the marketplace it's a pretty good one in
0: in episode four we looked at how relevant is price elasticity now uh and i think it was it was recorded in it was recorded in june uh so um uh, uh, shall we, we just roll the clip price elasticity is sometimes put on a on a pedestal, right? It's uh, almost—it's aspirational. It's up there for something that um, that businesses want to want to unearth. And I think sometimes there's a a bit of a, a dark art kind of. There's almost like a veil is 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 put over it, and um, e-commerce companies and retailers sort of hope that by. Unearthing, taking off the veil, uh, suddenly they'll they'll unlock all the hidden secrets, and that will that will solve all their worldly problems, and and that is what will help them, you know, unlock um, extra extra revenue and extra profitability. So, I'm I'm you know I think I'm I'm quite nervous I have to say about uh, about about this particular podcast because certainly uh, I always. Caveat: to These conversations that I have with clients, that, uh, that 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 it absolutely is a dark art. I think I'm not, uh, and uh, but it's got to be used with caution. There's a time and a place for it. So it's clear there that the summary is it's not that relevant now <laughs> because. It's not that relevant. <laughs> because uh, obviously, your previous models that you built, even if you built fantastic uh, price elasticity models, supply chains are constrained. People's buying behaviours are all over the shop. You know, people are buying completely different things because of lockdown. And actually, so so it was quite a it was quite a relevant um, uh, it was very timely that we did that particular title in June. But even if we step away from we remove the kind of COVID. Uh, covid factor i'm going to call it now um would you agree rob that that I, people historically are not changing prices enough to use to have a, a reliable
1: model to calculate price elasticity yeah um i think there are routes to it um but i don't think the space is advanced enough i mean again to go back to the how often are you changing your price thing Um, For context, I did some research on some internal data sets um, and I wanted to look at how many price changes do I need to get kind of what I'd view as a statistically significant price elasticity value. And it's around 80 and at a minimum it's 30 unique price changes. Um, And that is... If you want to do it at a product level, that's changing the price every day for a month. And most of those prices will be quote unquote wrong. Uh <laughs> and and then even if you do it a category or you can group products, it's a, it, no one naturally is really changing price enough over a wide enough range um in the kind of e com space. So you see you do see it. We've got um clients who who do it, but they tend to be more sophisticated or can or have more sophisticated businesses who are happy to kind of take the I don't know sophisticated or right sophisticated in terms of the view of pricing within their business i guess i should say so they're, they're willing to take a profitability or revenue hit to experiment
0: um i mean the main thing that i've taken away from it is you you need to change prices a lot to get to a robust uh to be able to use price elasticity in the way that i suppose it's intended but if you haven't changed price 80 times as you've as you've alluded to you can still use it as an indicator of well hang on if i've increased the price historically has that what impact has that had on volume and use that as an indicator to 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 price test further or use it as an indicator to say holy cow i dropped the i i you know i increased the price and sales dropped off a cliff
1: yeah, sorry, I mean me interrupt, but what I'd add to that, I think, is that if you're in a heavily competitive space like e-com in general, like e is, and it's only going to get more so now. Of, I mean, if you look at the Black Friday data, it was all online because all the shops were shut, so people can't take that risk. Anyone who wasn't getting online is now getting online. We've been saying that for a while, but they're going to die if they don't, basically. Um, the If you're in a heavily competitive space, the window you're optimising on is tiny like um it's it's a few percentage points in the range so unless you're selling enough for that to be um impactful which most of the people we work with won't be because we we tend to work in the sme space um it it is kind of not worth the roi i guess is what i'm saying that makes sense so in episode six, we looked at profit-killing
0: competitor pricing mistakes and how to avoid them. Uh, so let's have a refresh of what we spoke about. This was another title test. <laughs> to come back to the the 50% of the time, it is a right decision to follow, and 50% of the time it isn't. That's why, I, you know, I don't know if you like this term, but I'm going to say it anyway, I you can tell me afterwards if you don't like it. It's the whole concept of a price skirmish. I think a price skirmish might be a better way to describe it because absolutely, there's a time where you should have a bit of a skirmish because you know that you're you're trying to win customers and that price. People do decide to buy from that product based on price. It's not a sexy product. It's available in lots of places. People have lots of options to buy it. Therefore, if your if a competitor of yours changes the price. You have to have a skirmish, and, and you have to you have to um, you have to follow sometimes, or you have to try and set the price and then see if they follow you back, right? But it's about using the data to then work out when do I when do I stop doing that, and I don't just go into this pit of decline. And also, when when can I make decisions that aren't completely competitor led? Would you agree yeah. with that or disagree with that?
1: I actually I like it because it, it's. Price war is too grandiose for what we're talking about. We're not talking about strategic pricing for one of a better term. We're talking about tactical pricing, just feeling about the marketplace, right? Um, and so it, it is. It's those li- those little like um, yeah, th- those skirmish is quite a good term. Those li- li- those little fights you pick, like oh, I get a bit under. Can they move or do they? It's, we've talked about that before, actually it's, uh, you can say, so are they efficient enough, like a lot of the time is, can I, can I take a little bit, can I drop a little bit here and just pick up the volume because they're not paying attention um, and you have to respond, right? You have to respond. Um, but the, it, the interesting thing is that if the whole market is moving, I guess, rather than players within the market, that's, that's the difference. Nobody's winning, right? Uh, I mean, short term the consumer's probably winning a bit, but longer term, maybe not, because actually the competitive price music movement says nothing about consumer demand, and I think that that's that's the the key bit. It just says about like you say, who's got the biggest guy is <laughs> you or your competitor. Um,
0: now we like clever kahunas here, so uh, not uh, <laughs> not just having big kahunas for the sake of it. Well we were testing this was was another title test, wasn't it, Rob? We were testing uh you know, we were testing the negative title versus versus the positive title. But mm. but that aside, um, you know, what were your key takeaways from, from this this particular podcast or or what are you seeing as some of the 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 more recent competitor pricing mistakes that retailers are doing?
1: I I think it's more I think a lot of what we said was true in terms of racing to the bottom and making sure that you're using other data sets to protect your margin and working out what you can compete on and what you can't compete on and segmenting your inventory and all of that. Um, I don't think that's changed. I actually think it's become, it went through a period of really, really not mattering actually, because it was basically down to whether you had stock or not. And <laughs> If you had stock, you could charge what you want. If you didn't have stock, you could, you, well, you can sell it. Um, but no, I think, I think this kind of doing a proper competitor analysis and applying it to your pricing um, is hugely impactful. And I actually think it's more impactful than we thought knowing what we know now because of what we now know about how the Google marketing environment works. Well, hold you're...
0: that thought, Rob, because oh, we right. are coming there next. Okay. okay. Well, that, that's, that's what I got. <laughs> So in episode twelve, back in August 17, August the seventeenth of August, rather, uh, it was published. We 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 did a podcast called "Pricing the Neglected Child of PPC." So let's roll the footage. I guess it's because you're so focused on a you want to deliver performance, right? Um, and, and also, if to to like if I was
1: if I was in a retail company, I'd be like, okay, cool. I've got to go deal with this whole monumental task of. Convincing people that maybe our pricing might need to change in some way shape or form Um, Especially if it's for campaigns that are underperforming like you've done everything possible Um, So that's why you it's a sense of fear but I guess the sense of fear should be flipped to a sense of like Actually discovery and curiosity is like okay what if we do this What if we adjust our prices for these product These products what what would that mean essentially from a, from a performance perspective? And I think when you when you add in pricing to the perform the overall um, performance improvement or conversion rate improvement conversation, that's when the conversation flips from actually we shouldn't change our prices to actually what can we do? How can we use pricing to improve performance? And that so that, that, that is the flip, which I think a lot more of retail income. So that's super is. interesting because it kind of ties in with what we were talking about in in previous episodes. Because what you're saying there is that it's heavily tied to the culture of the business, Mm -hmm. right? How well people communicate, how, how freely people feel like they can raise questions and having, uh, we were talking about last week in terms of maximizing, it's more scientific rather than cultural, but maximizing net profitability of a product. Mm -hmm. And that should be your overall KPI and your marketing people should be talking to your pricing people. But if you've got a marketing person who has to go over and effectively undergo a cultural change piece, to get their, to get their point across, that ain't gonna happen. Like yeah. unless you have senior level buy-in, mm-hmm. and I mean like C-suite. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't yeah. mean just like you need this manager to talk to that manager. Um, so I think that 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 actually is is probably core to a lot of why pricing isn't used th- throughout businesses. Right? It's that because it's often misunderstood, which is why it's neglected. Because it's it's a bit more nebulous and and certainly harder to kind of conceptually get your head around, at least at first thought, because I actually think digital marketing is harder when you actually get into it, but that's another conversation (laughs) for another day. (laughs) Um, And and because it's less understood, I just don't think, I don't think people truly understand like the power of pricing within, within or how, or how that this this kind of part of a business exists that they could just go and tap a guy or girl on the shoulder and literally be like, "Oh, you can actually solve like half my problems." In the case of digital marketing, you could probably send me a couple, save me a couple hundred grand, like like that. Realistically, just because that communication channel isn't there.
0: So, it is. Often often I'm so surprised that pricing's kind of forgotten about, um, isn't it Rob? It's it's almost shocking that, that if you read all the blog posts that people uh, people are not considering pricing when it has such a such a fundamental lever on, on improving conversions and, and impressions and, and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's certainly bizarre and it's something that we've only really just started uh addressing at Black Cub with a number of our clients. Um I think the listeners will be pleased to know that I've, I've I'm now a qualified Google Shopping ad Woohoo! person. Um, so no, I d- I've just been kind of working through a load of the Google Google marketing materials for want of a better term. I wouldn't say it was really an academy when it's just telling you why Google is great for two hours. Um, but that's digression. Yeah, I think it's super impactful. I think being priced correctly feed it directly impacts. Um, the google algorithms and how they they calculate the relevance of your not just your uh, paid search but probably also your organic search um so i i think that's kind of stay a stay tuned one for me as we start to understand it more but it's certainly from our internal research has a massive impact
0: yeah, and without uh, taking up too much airtime and giving giving too much of, too much of the game away, needless to say, the the key takeaways that we've discovered this this year is that you've you've got to be within a certain position of what Google describes as the market price to be visible, okay. And also, one of the takeaways that we've that we've discovered this year is what you have done historically with your pricing. Okay. Also determines how much how visible you are, and you know what what the cost per click you'll have to do to to achieve that particular that, that particular impression in front of, in front of the customer. So pricing, you know, whilst whilst we'll put the hand, put our hands up and say you know we haven't solved solved the full equation of of of, of here's, here's the here's the playbook to, to 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 outdo outdo Google Google. Um, what we have identified is that. That pricing has a huge lever on on your impression, share of impressions, and uh, and and your and and your total impressions. And so, you know, if you if you are engaging with a marketing agency to support you with the optimization of your um, of your of your AdWords campaign. Don't underestimate and don't don't forget about pricing in that equation. So we'll stop there because we could could open up a whole a whole conversation, but um, but but watch this space and chase. Stay tuned for future future content from from us. And so in episode fifteen, uh, my personal favorite, and I've already I've already uh, said <laughs> said it was was uh, the, the topic bye bye never knowingly so bye bye never knowingly undersold. <laughs> um, and this uh, well actually let's just cue the tape.
1: I think this is a very smart move because it's, it's the difference between value-based pricing and competitive-based pricing, right? In that John John Lewis provides value in a whole host of other ways beyond being the cheapest. I find this interestingly because I don't think of John Lewis actually as a cheap brand, right? Well, I was going to say,
0: I was actually going to say earlier before I went off on a different tangent is it's funny how John Lewis have got this never knowingly undersold price promise. Whereas Waitrose, which is the same partnership, has got in the UK this perception that they are, you know, it's not luxury, luxury, it's not Harrods, but it's the upmarket supermarket, you know, and so it's quite bizarre that they've got...
1: But I'd argue that for John Lewis as well. The people I know that shop in John Lewis are posh, like in, in in the nicest because it's expensive like the goods are expensive so it, it's it's there is a brand tension there when you say yeah we're the cheapest on these expensive goods and uh,
0: yeah that i mean that that's that's absolutely absolutely fair you know they've they've typically got more expensive brands i mean i, I suppose it's, it's it's also i always laugh when people say oh harrods is expensive but it's almost like you know if you're going to get a comparable products at harrods yeah okay it's probably on the money <laughs> but if you're going to buy a diamond ring you're not going to necessarily find it cheaper elsewhere you know because they're selling luxury products this
1: this again is where the the slogan is weird because you're for me the the association with john is well apart from christmas advert is um is quality right and like uh good warranties and uh, so you i've always you're paying you're buying a better a better quote unquote branded product you're getting a warranty, you're getting the customer support and, and all the rest of it. And that's why traditionally, at least people I've interacted with have shopped there, not because they're the cheapest on that specific product. Um, so it seems weird to to basically have to pick this fight unnecessarily, almost, in, in, because it doesn't lie up with kind of your core cool brand value.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it also, you know, like people shop there because it's a one-stop shop. It's a department store. It's just easier getting, you know, you can buy, you can buy a T-shirt and a toaster at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and some curtains. It's like, it's this, cra- yeah, it's this, 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 ma- this amazing product mix. So, uh, and I think this comes down to, you know, I always, everyone always talks about the price promise being, well, it's trust building, it's trust building. But trust doesn't mean you be the cheapest. If you've got trust, you've got pricing power. And if you've got pricing power, you don't have to be the cheapest. So Rob, what can you what can you remember from this particular this particular podcast? What were your key takeaways?
1: Don't price much.
0: <laughs> but why why were we so excited about this? I was uber excited, not because it was John Lewis, but I was John I was kind excited of excited because it was John Lewis. <laughs> uh,
1: and pricing was in the news and we've been saying it for months or years in some cases, but um, no, I think it was really interesting in that this notion of having to compete purely on price and price being the only reason why someone buys from you, the only driver of demand is quite simplistic Um, especially in a fully digital world like i know i've been banging on about this and i've been boring the hell out of philip but like one of the key things that google says and they've got a view on all the conversion data of everyone in the whole world is that usability uh, of your site um is is probably the biggest driver for conversion uh in in general so If people are buying to you because of experience or uh, brand or or whatever, you probably don't need to match on price and sacrifice the margin there. It may be unsustainable because you may not even be able to compete with other people on it. Um, So that was quite, quite interesting to me, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I'm honest, it was because we were talking about John Lewis, but but no, it was it was it was value-based pricing out there front and center in the in the trade press and the the national national news, and that was that was that was great to see that people were um, that John Lewis was recognising uh, the value that it, and I think they all I think they already they knew, but they sort of felt well, this promise had been was was inbuilt in our dna right back from i can't remember the exact date but it's been around for almost a hundred over a hundred years wasn't it that this that this um this particular price
1: long time ago <laughs> so i think i think
0: you know naturally you've you've kind of got it ingrained in your dna and so i think that was probably why they'd they, they'd waited so long and it required you know a new um a new chief to to come in and say nope we're going to we're going to do this but but it was great to see that that businesses were considering the value that they offer for customers rather than just just competing on price as you as mm. you see. So if you want to hear more go back to September the 7th as we first started to put on our jumpers uh this year for 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 those uh for those podcasts. Episode 16 I actually really really enjoyed and I didn't it was one of those ones that I kind of went into actually if I'm honest going Oh, well, we, are we going to have a? Are we going to have a lot to talk about? Are we? Are we kind of, you know, opening up a hornet's nest? I mean, it was entitled "Are you accidentally price fixing?" So let's uh, let's let's cue cue the tape for that one.
1: Yeah, realistically, you you have a tool that automatically gathers data from the internet, and then you have a piece of software that will automatically implement that decision. Usually, when a price change has been made, so the tool recognise that, say, um, a book on a website has changed by 15p and then if your pricing rule says you always want to be the lowest you'll drop your price to to be the match or, or or undercut that um so if we're talking about price fixing more specifically uh say you're just matching your competitors they make a price change you match that price change um you both effectively moved your price by the same amount
0: so i think w- one of the the bit bits of data that would be in really interesting to get hold of is of the twenty five percent of the market that is react is using technology to react to price changes. What technology are they buying? Because you know, I, one of the reasons that I founded Black Curve because I have a fundamental bugbear on, un you know, and why why should you follow your competitors if you don't have to? And this is what we mean by. The, the one of one of the outputs of doing that is not only that you're 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 sometimes you're lowering price when you don't need to. So sometimes you're following, but in this instance, in the, you're accidentally price fixing in terms of you're accidentally increasing the price unknowingly because you're following a move, and that's causing a negative impact on the market. Because also, are you selling any more because you're making that move? Are you selling you know less? You're ignoring so many other pieces of the jigsaw. And, and that's what that's what frustrates me. So I would love to know, of the 25% of the market, how many are, how much, one, one of the easy ways to do it would be to find out how much money people are actually spending on pricing technology, and then maybe using that as a lever. Because typically, really basic pricing technology is around about 50, 100 quid a month, right? Okay. Yeah. And most of those technologies will simply be saying, right, I want to make sure I'm my market position is, number three in the market okay as in my prices are always the third most expensive or or the third cheapest whichever way whichever way you look at it or i want to always maintain parity with rob's emporium uh to, to <laughs> borrow to borrow a shop from a previous podcast uh, or philip's outdoor store right you know th- mm-hmm. th- these 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 are these are the par- and if 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 that's all they're doing is that what we mean by Price fixing, is that, is, that, is that there's a risk there. Is that is that what we mean? The, these very Yeah, basic... basically
1: that, right? It's that you're not using any information about supply or demand to dictate what your price should be, which is what you're supposed to do in an efficient market. So if we go around the slightly antagonistic legal question of, of price fixing, it's exactly what you say. You're not actually charging the optimum amount for that product. You're not maximizing profitability. You're just... Setting a price because a competitor set at a price. So,
0: what were your key takeaways from that, Rob?
1: Um, well, the the, the, co- the core thing is if if everyone has competitor driven strategies, it's it's possible that you just end up stuck in the same place, or um, which is still possible, it's still completely possible. Because I don't I don't think uh, actually suddenly the entire marketplace moved to value-based pricing most people are still running competitive prices um i do think it's kind of i'm less worried about it this year than i would have been if you'd asked me last year or the the year before because really the key differentiator for a lot of people we work with is whether you have an item in stock or not Uh, and as as an, as a consumer, at the minute, actually, whether someone has an, an item in stock or not is probably my key driver to buying, rather than whether someone's cheap or not. I guess what I'm saying is that in a less competitive market, due to lack of stock, uh, competitive price, this competitive price thing is less impactful. Um, but yeah, I think it's still key. And like if you're using a simple strategy that just either matches or places you a bit below a competitor um you are inadvertently price fixing because the machines are talking to machines and saying just keep it here i don't think that's changed um i don't i also don't think that e-com has gone through the kind of growing pains that the city went through when the bots started talking to each other and we had a couple of uh flash crashes and things like that um driven purely by algorithms and I reckon we the more uh, the more automated things get and the less the the less sophisticated technologies do have a liability to blow up or race to the bottom or race to the top even um as well as just freezing. Thanks for that Rob. So the
0: next uh, the next one I'm going to because we we're, we're a bit of the way in i'm going to throw a curveball we're going to do two at the same time because because actually it was almost like we saw into the future uh, so so in episode um, 17 we looked at how retailers should approach pricing this holiday season um, and that was uh, that was published in September the 21st so kind of you know at the at the beginning and the lead up into into October and November you know your traditional um, kind of discounting periods and then in episode 24 we did a a pricing teardown on sporting goods which was actually a retrospective uh on um on on that particular sporting goods sector about how they had behaved during uh during the the black friday cyber monday although it's kind of been kind of black friday month cyber month (laughs) cyber monday month or even even quarter if you look at if you look at some people's websites so let's remind us of um of some of the some of the takeaways from from those those podcasts where should retailers start from their pricing perspective to make sure that they don't you know they follow some of warren i'm on first name terms with him uh, <laughs> some, some of warren's uh, uh, advice the uh, to, to support, <laughs> support to, to, the big, <laughs> to survive the economy
1: um I think it's probably where looking at the place i'd start is looking at the last lockdown uh if I'm completely honest because the benefit of um of this one is that we've done it before um, and you've had some time to cope and put procedures in place and it should be recent enough and you should have been expecting it so I think the place to start is what, what were the takeaways the key takeaways from the last lockdown where did people do well, where did people do less well and then kind of building on that for, for me.
0: So I think we spoke a lot about supply chain constraints mm. didn't we last times but I, I think we we probably should have started a, a swear jar for for the amount <laughs> of times that we that we mentioned it but certainly um you, you, even before we look at pricing as a the, the actual physical pricing decisions you you've got to get your supply chain sorted or at least get visibility of your supply chain to enable Subsequent decisions to take place um, because certainly, um, from the case studies that, that, that I was involved in and saw, the, the companies that had visibility of their supply chain and used solutions like Black Curve to support them with the pricing decisions, it was all about enabling them to hold their nerve to hold Mm -hmm. that price point especially if they had visibility that certain products the supply chain was going to be constrained and you it wasn't going to be restocked so you win no you win no prizes by selling out too cheaply so rob what almost i think i think we do have a crystal ball do you agree
1: yeah to a point (laughs) it's called listening to our clients i think (laughs)
0: You've got two of these and one of these. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Well, no, we'd certainly heard from 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 customers that they thought Black Friday was going to be less of a a thing, and then actually having it um, at, on a period where certainly in the UK we're in a national lockdown and no one can go to physical stores anyway um, has meant that it's even possibly even well more slash less slash completely uncomparable to anything we've seen before because of, of, of online sales are up x million billion percent but they're up x million billion percent anyway obviously there's a seasonal there is a, there was a seasonal spike in terms of people are still used to buying on black friday there are still discounts etc etc but uh, a jury's still out for me actually if, if if i'm if I'm completely honest, all I can tell you is that it's made my life really hard from a reporting perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I know about Black Friday this year. And if I talk to our customers, it's made their lives really hard from a reporting perspective because because there's so much weird stuff going on, it's basically impossible to isolate what's driving uh, what's driving what really uh which is what we try to do to communicate kind of the value of pricing to people and whether they should work with us so um yeah it's a mess <laughs> <laughs> uh, but these are the challenges
0: that that we like i particularly liked episode 24 because it was an excuse for us to uh to to look at some some tractor toys which yeah, i quite I enjoyed
1: that, that was actually my highlight i think of the podcast year was discovering that john deere tractor uh, it is
0: unfortunately. I'm not. I'm not convinced you'd fit in it, though, Rob. I, I think it might be. Yeah,
1: but, oh, I, don't, I shouldn't say that on there. <laughs> Maybe. It's not, uh, it's not that rude, it's a bit mean. <laughs> uh, As solutions engineer, we have might like. <laughs>
0: Uh, <laughs> so, um, I'm just I'm just conscious that we're coming to the top of the album and I'm going to save you from getting into any more trouble there. Um, what, what you know, if we look at all of that as a whole, uh, you know, the the bit that I I like is that we still haven't cracked it. There's still lots of exciting data challenges, data problems, problems to address. But what's been great to see is that, especially as we've progressed and tried to communicate some of the theory and some of the practices, is that pricing is having a real impact on on the businesses that we're working with. And 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 when it's used effectively, uh, it can absolutely hit your bottom line, which is which is great to see. Um, and some of the some of the some of the takeaways that, that I've really enjoyed is work working with um, working with our customers, especially at the beginning of the lockdown, when they've been like, holy cow how are we going to survive this um, and you know and, and seeing our rules in action you know the the stock rule for example of um where where supply chains are constrained um, and we've we've enabled them to realize more from that particular sale because the rules have automatically seen into the future and 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 kick-started it and that's actually why you know more recently we did episode 23 of can AI be used in pricing and I think you know when when used correctly and effectively um it can be it can be really powerful but also what's been really nice and an eye-opener eye-opener for me is that even at the low-hanging fruit even at the early stages of pricing optimization there's huge 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 opportunities where you're just using competitor data to really get a steal on steal on your competition but again it's about using that competitor data in the right way and not just taking it on on face value
1: yeah i'll I'll jump in on that because you said we were going to talk about automation but we haven't yet Um, because I I think price automation for me is the key lesson in pricing in 2020 because if you can get your pricing automation to perform, let's say, 80%, 90% as effectively as as the human management of it, um, when everything goes to hell in a handcart, (laughs) you can leave that. Um, and and focus your human resource on solving like the really hard business challenges in the current trading environment. We have not take up time kind of manually uploading S- CSVs. Because
0: um, I think because I think a lot of the time uh you know it, it the automation enables you to rapidly at scale repeatedly make decisions across your whole entire inventory. In the best of will of the world, even when you're in a non-COVID era, uh you know, it, it's hard enough to do. But it even proves itself when you're being pulled in sick in lots of different directions yeah, the power of automation. Even,
1: even more important now, probably probably than I mean we, we actually spoke about this and this would probably be my my key my key statement I made on the podcast. This year is that, given the environment now, automate pricing with a simple competitor to reprice. It. If even if you have nothing, nothing else, right? If you have the time, optimize it. Fantastic, but you will you will gain that benefit, quote unquote, immediately. Free up resource. I would say use a more sophisticated one that's not going to tank your margins. Uh, but but you can quite simply using someone like us. Um, Automate a process, free up a lot of time, and get people like I said focusing on things like the, the crisis points that actually need human-level decision. Because I think the interesting thing for pricing in twenty twenty, just to close that out, is that pr- pricing has played backseat to stock in, in twenty twenty. Normally, and normally it's often the other way around because we're in a we've been purely in a supply-driven economy rather than a demand-driven economy for once um so it's it's kind of like that's where your energy should be so being able to to kind of take this other process automate it at scale like you said and the scale is the important bit like over multiple thousands of skis to do it accurately and regularly um uh, is a great would be a great place to start or a good thing to do i think certainly this year
0: so head to blackcurve.com and hit free trial now that's uh, that's 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 how we're going to end it so thank you very much rob it's been an absolute pleasure uh, this is actually episode 25 so i think that's a good way to good good number to end uh, end 2020 on uh, and and roll on 2021 so merry christmas to everyone listening we hope you've enjoyed this year and uh, and next year is going to be even better so so from santa and me merry christmas and look forward to working you next year take care Bye bye.